So um, I'm a psychiatrist by background. I uh, served in the British military in the Royal Navy for about 23 years uh, as a general doctor and as a psychiatrist. And uh, my specialization is in general mental health, but particularly because of my military background, I was very interested in how individuals and organizations deal with uh, traumatic circumstances. Uh, and so much of my research, which I work at King's College London, has been looking at how uh, trauma affects people. Um, and most importantly, at least from my point of view, about what organizations can do to try and protect the mental health of staff exposed to trauma. And then unfortunately for those minority of people who do develop PTSD, what you can do to try and um, help them get back to being okay again. Hello, and welcome to COVID Matters, a podcast by COVID Aid. I'm your host, Cheryl, and I'm a content editor and writer at COVID Aid. On today's episode, I talk to Professor Neil Greenberg, who is a consultant, academic, occupational, and forensic psychiatrist at King's College London. He also chairs the Special Interest Group in Occupational Psychiatry at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, RCP. He's been awarded for his outstanding work looking at the psychological impact and aftermath management of traumatic incidents for military and emergency service workers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Professor Neil was a member of Public Health England's expert reference panel and he continues to advise NHS People Wellbeing Recovery Team. On today's episode, I talked to Professor Neil about his work during the pandemic. We discussed the groups likely to have had a traumatic response to the pandemic outbreak, how his team helped to prepare mental health support packages for those working in the London Nightingale hospitals, and also why getting mental health support at an early stage is essential to reducing the impact or likelihood of that mental health issue developing into something more serious. Now, by definition, PTSD is an anxiety condition in which intense negative emotions, thoughts and memories caused by a traumatic event persist and interfere with someone's daily life. In what ways has the pandemic exposed the public to situations which may lead to PTSD? And are there any groups which have been affected? Yeah. So I think before I launch into the PTSD bit of it, I think what's important to recognise is many, many of us get exposed to highly stressful or even traumatic situations uh, and don't become ill. So we don't develop PTSD. And in fact, if you look at people's normal trajectory of reactions after exposure to trauma, what happens is most people have some sort of distress. So they can't sleep so well. They think about the event. They're a bit sort of jumpy. Um, And that distress normally comes on shortly after the event and slowly over the next few weeks, maybe in some cases the next few months, it gradually goes away without the need for any professional intervention. So it's important to recognize that although we're going to talk about PTSD, most people who get exposed to trauma don't get PTSD. They have a non-pathological, completely ordinary distress response to, to an event, and that gets better by itself. So with that in mind, there absolutely are groups of people 
who are at increased risk of suffering with PTSD because of the pandemic. Um, and we can think about it in a variety of ways. So first of all, we've got particular occupational groups. So you've got healthcare workers as a great example, social care workers, uh, and also other people who have been directly involved in dealing with the response and seeing, you know, let's be honest, the enormity of, of death and, uh, and despair that has gone on over the last two years. And so those sorts of individuals, although mostly are exposed to trauma anyway, you know, if you're in a healthcare setting and you work in intensive care, you unfortunately expect to see people who are going to be very ill and die. That, that's part of your job but not on the scale that's gone on over the last two years and not with the restrictions that have prevented you from doing uh, the job you want to do. So as a great example, again, sticking with healthcare workers, normally in intensive care, you have one specialist nurse you know, per seriously ill patient uh, and you've got a team of other specialists around them to support them. And so you give people the very best care and you know, hopefully that helps. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't. But during the pandemic, you've had maybe one specialist nurse for six patients or four patients. So you can't give that level of care that you normally would want to. And that clearly leads to, to the patients not necessarily doing so well. And that leads to you feeling terrible and that things haven't gone right. So I think it's important to remember there are particular occupational groups uh, who have been exposed in spades because of it. You've also got the general population. So um, we know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of death. And that death hasn't been, dare I say, an ideal death. You know, so if your mother or father or brother or sister or loved one is dying of COVID, you haven't always been able to go in and sort of be with them in their last moments. You haven't always been sure that they're getting the level of care that you want them to. You might have had to wait for care when you think that they're so critically ill, this sort of person shouldn't wait. So it exposes us to situations of trauma and despair, which, which ordinarily would be distressing, but because of the COVID restrictions has been particularly so. So there's a loss of loved ones, I think is an important, important group. You've then got people obviously who have caught COVID. And some of us, you know, hopefully many of us who caught it have had a mild disease and it's not been too bad. But many people have been quite unwell. Some of those people have had to go into hospital. Some of them have been on oxygen. Some of them have been in intensive care. And you can see I'm slowly sort of increasing the severity of the illness. And what we know is for those people who have probably had the most severe forms of COVID, they're going to be really worried that they might have died because, you know, people do die with COVID and, and that's going to have affected uh, their mental health. And indeed, there was a paper out last year uh, looking at sort of the severity of the COVID infection you have and the likelihood of suffering with PTSD. And it's not surprising that the more ill you were, the more likely you were to have uh, PTSD symptoms. And then I think you've also got one last group, you know, we could probably talk about lots of different groups, one last group, which is the general population who are more vulnerable to stress and anxiety even before the pandemic. So you've only got to turn the TV on or read the newspapers to see there's despair and gloom, you know, everywhere you, you want to look. And for those of us who have had mental health problems or are a bit vulnerable to stress in the past, hearing those stories, you know, with doom being on the agenda all the time, can also affect some of us. And, and in a small proportion, that, that may lead to people developing PTSD. But probably in most cases, it would lead to other mental health problems, such as depression or other anxiety disorders. But for some, PTSD would be there as well. How quickly were you able to recognise that this had the potential to become an issue in terms of PTSD and how the pandemic was affecting people? 
Well, I think the, the earliest recognition that there was going to be a problem for some occupational groups came very quickly when the level of patients coming to hospital who were seriously ill, you know, zoomed up very quickly during the early pandemic. And certainly myself and my colleagues at, uh, at King's College London, we work in a, uh, a unit called the Health Protection Research Unit, which was going for six years before the pandemic started. It's um, funded by the National Institute for Health Research. And our job for, for the last six years has been to, to look at how teams operate in adversity. Uh, we've actually looked at epidemics and outbreaks of diseases before, how people operate there, all much smaller scale than the pandemic. So when the pandemic started, some of the team um, went on to different government bodies, including SAGE. Uh, some of us got involved, as, as I did, sort of with the NHS, looking about how the NHS used to be supporting their staff. And I was lucky enough to actually lead a small team of health professionals who provided the mental health support at the London Nightingale Hospitals when that first set up, which is one of the sort of the early initiatives. So I think pretty quickly we recognised that actually the NHS was, was facing a real challenge in ensuring that the staff who were going to have to be at the front line, as it was called, against this virus, uh, were going to really need good support. And at that stage, of course, we didn't know how long it would be going on either. You know, there was this kind of the wave, the first peak was coming, but no one knew that there would be second, third and other peaks as well. So pretty quickly, I think it was clear that there were going to be occupational groups at higher risk. And then consequently, there was a recognition, certainly within England and also within the other uh, parts of the UK, from the public health bodies, like Public Health England and Public Health Scotland and the like, that actually there was going to be a public health response needed because there were communities, populations of people or who didn't really know what was going on. And really, no one no one knew what we know now. Uh, and even now, we don't have all the answers, do we? So this huge amount of uncertainty is a real driver in, in creating mental ill health in people. Again, not always PTSD, but certainly in some cases that would have been the case. Can you talk a little bit more about your work within the mental health support of the Nightingale Hospitals? How you tackled that like you say we were so early in the pandemic it's it's difficult to know what resources and what support is needed could you tell us a bit more about that process the thing about the nightingale hospital which was i guess felt very um like i was at home in many senses is that what it aimed to do was completely new set up a new hospital in a new place with new staff where there was no blueprint for how that should be done and so actually, one of the things the military does really well is that when you send groups of people to foreign places to fight conflicts, you have to set up, you know, in an area where there's nothing, you have to set up a whole little city or town, including a field hospital. And one of the things that we know from having done that for years and years and years is that you need to have your mental health support as part of that. So if you're going to have a team of people doing incredibly challenging tasks, you don't need thousands of psychiatrists, but you need a little bit of expertise to make sure that the way that the teams are run protects the team's mental health. And so when the Nightingale was being set up, what became very quickly apparent was, yes, we were working out processes of how to deliver intensive care to patients who were going to be on, on the shop floor, as we called it, you know, in this sort of big area. But also we were going to have to bring teams of people together to do this really challenging task, and we needed to look after them. So I was able to use all the research work that I've done the years on how to support teams and also bring my military background and the military background of the other team members who were part of the team. And not we weren't all ex-military, but quite a lot of us were, to make sure that actually our staff started to get trained in how to deliver 
physical health care to large numbers of patients, that actually we built into that how to protect yourself, how to look after each other, how to make sure the supervisors felt competent to speak to their staff about mental health, and how to have a peer support process going around so that if you didn't feel comfortable in speaking about mental health to your colleague, there were other people around who you could easily access. And so we put all that into place and came up with a plan about how to deliver mental health care support. And actually, although thankfully the Nightingale hospitals didn't actually end up treating very many patients, but the London one, I think, treated between 50 and 60 patients, not thankfully the 4,000 that were being predicted. What we're able to do is to share that template. And actually many NHS organisations used our template you know, to help form their ideas because the NHS is absolutely fabulous, but again, doesn't normally go on to a, dare I say, war footing for months and months and months. And I think the sort of advice and structures and processes we put in place in the Nightingale in London were useful for a lot of other NHS trusts. Yeah, it's great to hear that we might not have necessarily needed as much as we predicted, but that we had those resources and structures in place. You just spoke there a little bit about the peer support. One question I had to ask was, a lot of people have this feeling that someone else is worse off in the pandemic, and we kind of compare our situation to others. But in fact, how would you reach out and reassure and perhaps validate the experiences of people who might be struggling with PTSD or some kind of mental health issue, but they're not reaching out for support because they believe someone else is worse off than themselves? This all kind of falls under the umbrella of what's sometimes called stigma. Now, actually, stigma is more than this, but that's normally, if you're looking at the media, that's normally how they sort of package it together. But actually, what are, and we've done a lot of research on this, particularly looking at military veterans, but it's equally applicable to the general population and other organizations, is that there isn't just one thing that stops people getting mental health care, but there's a whole sort of series, if you think about it like a set of stairs, we first of all, you have to recognize that there's something wrong, you know, that your sleep's not good, but it's not just a couple of bad days, that this might be a difficulty. So first of all, there needs to be this recognition. Then there is identifying it as something that they might need treatment or what you might need support for, because most of us prefer to deal with things ourselves. You know, you think if you just, if I change this or I do this one thing, it will get better. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. So then you have to reach this point of recognizing that what you've got is, is a thing, a disorder, a problem that isn't getting better by itself. And, and at that point, I could do with some help. And then what you're talking about comes in is you look around and think, well, how easy is it to get help? And of course, the stories in the media are, you know, people having huge weights to get care and these seriously unwell people. And so you can see why you think, well, given all that, going on out there you know what need do I have or what rights do I have to get that care and then sometimes we overcome that and we try and get care and it can be quite difficult or when we go and see someone they sort of say well you don't seem very unwell and that instantly puts you off thinking well clearly I don't want to take up space of other people and then you know once you do manage to get into care you then have to trust the person that you're speaking to that they're gonna deal with you sensitively and that they understand where you're coming from and so there's all these little steps that sort of impair us getting to, to get the treatment we need. The interesting thing here is we often think about this being more common in certain groups of society, you know, veterans being a good example, you know, police officers, you know, construction workers. We would kind of think of all those people as being kind of pretty stoical and, and not asking for help. 
But actually, when we look at the data across the, uh, the, the population of the UK, we find that actually stigma isn't restricted to any one particular group. It's not just military veterans who have a stiff upper lip. It, it's society. And the studies that have been done show that actually back in 2007, and this was a big study done in England, a really well-conducted study, it's called the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Study. And they found back in 2007, probably one in four people who had a mental health problem were actually getting any help. So three quarters of people with mental health problems weren't getting any help at all. When that was rechecked in 2014, so seven years later, that one in four has gone up to one in three. You know, so the direction of travel is good. You know, now slightly more people, another 8% were getting care. But it still means that most people with mental health problems weren't receiving any help at all. So the most common outcome, unfortunately, for people who develop mental health problems is they struggle on with them. Uh, and then at some point, they may sort of reach a crisis point, And that's when they seek help. It might be that they get done for drunk driving or get uh, convicted. They might tell their partner what they think of them when they're angry, which isn't always the right thing to do. Or they might make a critical mistake at work. And at that point, they go, gosh, you know, this has been terrible for a while. This has happened now. Now I need to get help. And of course, the real challenge here for individuals, but also for society, and I think for employers, is how do you get people upstream? Because if you could get them at a point when they weren't that serious, the solutions are much simpler. And we may prevent those critical events from happening so that actually um, people's well-being is protected in the longer term. So that's the challenge. Yes, many people don't seek help. But actually, if you can get help at an earlier stage, the solutions uh, and the outcomes are often a lot easier and a lot better. Are there signs we can maybe look out for in order to either help someone else who we believe might be struggling or within ourselves to look out for? You mentioned a disrupted sleeping pattern, for example. Yeah, well, actually, there's good evidence. Sleep's actually a pretty good indicator of poor mental health, although, of course, sleep's also disrupted for lots of other reasons. If you've got young children or noisy neighbours, you may have disrupted sleep. If you've got a painful leg or arm, you may not sleep well. So yes, sleep is a really good indicator, but we also have to be careful. There are lots of other reasons that sleep doesn't necessarily uh, go very well for people. So in the broader sense, it, it's about changes. It's about negative changes and persistent negative changes. So having a bad day, a bad two days, a bad week when you don't get your promotion at work or your partner says something that you, you, know, that you really don't like, that's part of normality. But when it goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and when actually you find that you can't remember the last thing you enjoyed doing and you felt tired all the time. And then when someone says, you know, what are you doing next week? All you can think of is all the terrible things you've got to do and how busy you are. And there's no pleasure in life. That's when you start to sort of move from, dare I say it, normal ups and downs of daily life into something where actually you might be unwell. So it's looking for persistent negative changes over weeks and weeks with lack of positive uh, futures, lack of positive thoughts about things that might that might be happening. Another good indicator is when people around you who know you well start to say, you okay? Is there anything up? Now, you know, people say that all the time, once or twice. You might have a bad day, you might have a bad knee, all those sorts of things. But when all the people around you or lots of them are starting to ask if you're okay, that should be a good red flag for maybe if they're all saying something's up, maybe they're right. It's easy to push them off once or twice and say, no, no, there's nothing wrong. But actually, after a while, maybe they're right. So look internally. Look also externally at people who are talking to you. And then I think perhaps one of the, the most important things is when you find that you can't do the things you normally do. 
So, you know, if you're a media professional and your job is normally to sit there and write a, a 500 word article and it takes you two hours normally to do it over, you get two cups of tea in it. But actually you spend all day and you haven't got anywhere past 200 words. You just can't think about it. That's a really good indicator. Or you like watching films, but actually you find that 20 minutes into a film, you just can't remember what you've been watching and you can't, and you're not enjoying it. It's those changes in things that we do that, again, should, should act as red flags. And I think in all these cases, when you think, well, I don't know if I've got a problem or not, that's when it's a good thing to talk to someone you trust. And, and I agree, it's difficult. And sometimes it can feel wrong to kind of say to someone, I'm not sure I'm doing okay. But if you can, if you can find someone you trust to, to ask, then, you know, how do you think I've been? That can be really eye-opening. Yeah, I think, as you said earlier, we are gradually opening up those kind of conversations. And it's just a case of sometimes you do just need to talk. And the more we do that, the more hopefully we can reduce those figures of how many people get access to the support they need. You spoke a little bit about the kind of family and social groups that people dealing with mental health disorders have. But of course, it affects them as well as the person suffering with the condition. I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about how it impacts them and are there ways in which they can best support the person in need? Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right that it's uh, someone's close family and friends and actually their work colleagues as well. They're also affected by someone with a significant mental health problem. So if you've got someone who's got a lot of health anxiety, which has been quite common during COVID, you know, people worried that that cough must mean that I've got something terribly wrong with me or having COVID and not being better completely after two weeks, which you're used to after a cold. That sort of health anxiety can almost infect other people. So they start to say, oh, you know, you had a cough too. You know, you sure there's something not wrong with you? And, and actually they start to make us question our own coping mechanisms for getting on with our lives. Someone who's got a significant mental health problem may also be more irritable. You know, so in a family environment, they may, may end up being disagreeable with their spouse or you know, shouting at their children, which may be out of character. And that, that then creates knock-on effects for other people's mental health. So you're absolutely right. It, it can affect uh, large groups of people. And I think one thing to think about also in, in the current climate is about people who work in safety-critical roles. You know, so if you're a train driver and actually you're significantly depressed and you're not driving your train properly, if something goes wrong, it can go wrong in spades, can't it? And we all sadly remember back to the German Wings plane crash of the poor pilot who was depressed, you know, but in his depression led to his death, but also the death of many others. So if you're in a safety-critical role, not just if you're flying a plane or driving a train, but if you're, if you're an intensive care specialist and you're, you're not concentrating on your job, you may miss things which may lead to bad outcomes. So I think that there is definitely an impact of people's mental health on, on others, you know, both in terms of the emotional impact, but also the practical impact if you can't do what you do normally. So what can a loved one or family or friends of someone do if they're worried that their loved one is, is, is not doing well? Well, actually, we, we did a, a study on a really interesting intervention, actually, which gives some insight into this. It's called CRAFT, uh, which stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And what this was was the idea was it originally started in the States for people who had drug and alcohol problems. So you had spouses, often women, but not always, you know, whose loved one was a heavy drinker. The, the loved one's mental health was impacted because their, their loved one was drinking all the time and, you know, difficult to deal with. And so what the healthcare professionals did who were providing support to the loved one was to recognize the best thing they could do is to get the person who was drinking to go and get some help. 
because if they got some help and stopped drinking, then everyone improves. And so the US Veterans Administration sort of worked on this and moved it from drug and alcohol into PTSD. And they started to look at, could they design an intervention for someone that they called the concerned significant other, the CSO? So often the partner of a veteran who have PTSD. And so the partner would come and say, I'm feeling terrible. My loved one's a nightmare. I don't know what to do. And the intervention, rather than just supporting the CSO, was trying to give them the skills so that they could nudge the loved one to go and get help. So the outcome they wanted was the loved one gets help, loved one gets better, everyone in the family improves. And so what they did is they had a multiple session intervention, which looked at the, the loved one's safety, but also about how to choose the right time to try and nudge people. So when someone's shouting and irritable, that's not the time to shout at them. You need to go and get some help because it's not going to work. But actually, when things are pretty calm, is there a way that you can bring up you know, the difficulties you've been having in a calm moment uh, and use the principles of what's called motivational interviewing, which is finding ways to nudge people towards. And it was a really interesting intervention, uh, which we then adapted and used over here in the UK with, with Help for Heroes, you know, as a, a military charity who funded the research. And what we find is actually it's a really useful way of trying to give the loved one the skills to pick the right moment, uh, to have the, the ways of not just nagging them or shouting them, but trying to motivate them with the outcome being get help. So what does that all teach us? Well, it teaches us that you know, the craft intervention may be interesting, but for most of us, we don't have access to craft therapy and the like. What it does say is pick your moment. Don't pick the middle of an argument or something going wrong. Try and pick the quiet moment when actually things are going pretty well. And sensitively say, I wonder whether I could bring this up. Uh, you obviously don't want to irritate the person because that's not going to help. But it's all about the focus being actually everybody, including you, the loved one, would be better off if we could just see whether we can get you some help. And so that's the approach. The approach you want is finding the right time to nudge your loved one towards getting appropriate help. And if you've done your homework beforehand, when they say, OK, I will you can say, well, I've got a list of 72 places that I found that you can get the help so that you can use that to nudge them. That's a useful approach, I think, which is backed up by the evidence we have. It's a difficult topic to broach with any loved one, family, friend, otherwise, and hearing about this initiative that guides them through that and how to pick those moments, it sounds like it's a great tool and great to hear that it's, it's successful too. In terms of the pandemic, obviously, finding support became more difficult and challenges were raised because we were told to limit our contact with others. So what effective alternatives do we have in terms of support that doesn't require in-person communication? I mean, yeah, that, this is a, a big topic that's you know, been going on for the last couple of years. And I, I think we've learned an awful lot. I mean, there's no doubt that things like using Zoom or using uh, WhatsApp for communicating with people is really useful, but we have to use it in a slightly different way to the way we might have done before the pandemic. So, you know, with these sort of meetings, what often people would do before the pandemic, particularly WhatsApp, I think was probably one of the most used, is you, you might have a 20-minute conversation, you know, once a week with your mother or your best friend, but that doesn't replace very well what happened in a workplace where actually you'd have lots of one-minute conversations uh, and before a big meeting started, you'd have five or 10 minutes to kind of socially mix with someone and chat about what's going on. And those small little social touches, you know, touching people socially throughout the day is what often goes on in a workplace and that's actually rather sustaining. So the question is, can we, can we do the same thing using remote means? And I think the evidence is we probably can. And so people, uh, certainly I think about my own life, and that's 
not great scientific evidence. I've had a lot more connections with people by people sending me little funny messages and things on WhatsApp. And so actually, I'm generally socially interacting quite a lot, but for very short periods of time now using social media uh, mechanisms, which is something I've never done two years ago. And so I think that actually what we have to do is to adapt those remote connection uh, tools that we have and to make it a little bit more easy to use at short periods throughout the day. So I think that that can certainly help. I think one of the, the challenges is, is that when you do that for a long period of time, we miss that innate seeing another human being and being, and being close to them. And I think uh, for those of us, when lockdowns kind of got slightly better and we were able to meet people outside and go for a walk, yes, it's not the same as sitting around someone's house, you know, having a cup of tea, but I think we need to grab the opportunities rather than think, well, if I can't have my, um, you know, my party with 12 people, I'm not going to have anything at all. You have to take the social contact that you can get. I think another thing is about the need to be very proactive. You know, so if you've got you know, an elderly relative who doesn't ordinarily interact on social media or if you're a manager at work, normally you would see people at your team meetings. You can't just rely on doing that every, you know, the once a week phone call. You need to actively, proactively reach out to people and to try and use those, those connections to not replace, but to, to sort of be similar to what we had before. So I think it, it, it's that balance of things. And it's, you can't just rely on, well, I'll just have the once a week message or once a week phone call. So I don't think that works very well. And of course, we have the RCP's recent resource um, edited by yourself, which helps in particular with PTSD, you know, how to identify it and questions that might come up in terms of that topic and how to address PTSD and recognize it within yourself or others. I wonder if maybe you could talk a bit more about that and what advice that provides for people suffering. Yeah, so actually the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have got two resources that we've just updated. One's about dealing with trauma and the other one's about PTSD itself. And as we said, most people who deal with trauma, thankfully, don't go on to develop PTSD. But of course, it can be quite hard to know when you have and when you haven't and what you should expect. And what the resources aim to do for, for most people exposed to trauma is to try and help them understand what is a normal pathway, you know, the normal reactions that we will have. You know, if you're not sleeping very well two days after a traumatic event, you don't need to be worried at that point that you're developing PTSD. You're probably having a very normal reaction. But if at two months afterwards, you're still shouty, you still can't sleep, you're drinking too much alcohol, then that's a, probably a good red flag that actually there is something going on. So those resources are really useful for people who have been through difficult events. And, and it's not just talking about death. You know, there are sadly, you know, there's assaults, there's terrorism. Trauma, unfortunately, affects people quite a lot of the time. And what the resources aim to do is to try and help you identify what's okay, what you can do to help look after yourself and others, and when to seek help. And then the PTSD resource is trying to paint a realistic picture that PTSD is a mental health problem. It can be quite a serious one. But the good news is there are treatments out there that can make a difference. And rather than, um, as we sometimes see on, on television or, or portrayed in, in books, PTSD is being a lifelong disorder that inevitably leads to doom and gloom. In many cases, people can have PTSD, get the right treatment, and they can recover. And without trying to be too positive on this, because, you know, getting a mental health problem is not a nice thing to happen. There is also this concept which is called post-traumatic growth which basically sums summed up as things that don't kill you can make you stronger. 
And so for many people who have come through a trauma, you know, they may find it pretty difficult. They may come out the other side saying, do you know what? I, I've grown as a result of that. I've learned things about myself and about the world that I didn't know beforehand. And the next thing that comes along, I am much better placed to deal with it. Uh, and what we want to try and do, the Royal College of Psychiatrists also has a slightly dated now resource that I helped put together called Going for Growth. And the idea there was for organizations, particularly healthcare ones that had gone through the pandemic, is rather than just how do we prevent staff from coming on well, is how do we come out of this as a psychologically more resilient organization? Because if we can survive that, then what can't we survive? And I'll be sure to link the resources in the episode show notes relating to that. What outcomes do you hope that we can take from this experience of the pandemic? And maybe how can we learn to handle global crisis in a better way in future to reduce the mental toll on the population? I think with my scientific hat on now, one thing that has been both an amazing pleasure and amazing innovation and also slightly bamboozling is the amount of research that has been pumped out over uh, the last two years. So before the pandemic, if you tried to get a scientific publication with an exciting new finding into print, you know, it took a long time, but there has been an explosion of papers. In fact, you know, people have talked about exponential curves, you know, when, when we're talking about the number of cases. If you look at the number of papers published, there's been an exponential curve in the number of scientific papers that have been published. And in many ways, that's fantastic. So people, academics have shared information, you know, on a scale that we haven't seen before. The downside is there's been so much information, it's hard to try and sift out, you know, where's the good high quality data from someone's good idea that actually is based upon no data at all. So I think one thing we should take out of this is when you need to get scientific information out, and that's important, we now can do that quickly. There's something called the preprint service, which is basically when you've got a paper before it's totally ready, you can put it on preprint and people can get your data straight away. Now, you may be getting the best thing in the world, or you may be getting something that actually is going to be rejected and isn't very good. But that, that's been a real innovation. I think also um, what we've seen is actually healthcare settings and other you know, frontline organizations have also shared best practice in a way that that probably hasn't happened before. You know, and we can see that to some degree in the vaccines that have come out as well, although we're not sharing them obviously well enough. So there's been lots of good things there in sharing information. The other thing I think is, is people with recognition that actually we can connect remotely. We, there are different ways of doing things. We don't have to only go and see grandmother you know, once every three months and speak to her on the phone. We can see what she's doing. You know, we can bake a cake with her if we want to you know, in that way. I think that that's something we, we should keep. And of course, there's been the recognition that work doesn't always mean, you know, getting up at seven in the morning, an hour commute. You know, we need to do that some of the time, I'm confident. But, um, but actually, we can also work in, in different ways. So I, I think, I hope we will get left a legacy, assuming this all does finish at some point, which hopefully it will, of, of positive things. And perhaps you know, lastly, again, slightly more positive, that idea that actually being kind is okay. When people are in difficult situations, it's easy that they can get irritable and grouchy. And rather than be grouchy back is to say, are you okay? Or gosh, this is difficult. Because actually, we, we all have ups and down days. So I think hopefully there's been a little bit more understanding that kindness can be a very good intervention. You don't always have to go into battle when other people seem not to be very happy. And finally, do you have any words for someone who may be listening to this episode of the podcast and relates to the experiences we've discussed? I think if, if you think you've got a mental health problem, whether it's PTSD or another 
mental health difficulty, then I wouldn't just sit around and cross your fingers and hope it's going to get better. You, know, you can take active coping. You can do lots of things. And there's great resources, both on the Royal College of Psychiatrists, but you can also go on to uh, Every Mind Matters, which is on the Public Health uh, England, UK Health Security Agency, now website, NHS. And these are loads of evidence-based tips and interventions that you can do yourself, and they will make a difference if you use them. But if you've tried all that and you've tried just crossing your fingers, do try and get some help early on. Speak to someone that you trust. And although it might seem like a big uphill struggle to get professional help, the sooner you get it, you may not need very much to get yourself back on track. So don't just sit around and cross your fingers and hope things will get better. Thanks so much to Professor Neil for joining us on this episode of COVID Matters. I can't thank him enough for sharing his time with us today. I think what's really important to take away from this episode is that yes, many of us have experienced poor mental health as a result of the pandemic. Some, unfortunately, more than others. But mental health support is out there. Whether that's talking to a friend or family member, reaching out to your employer, or perhaps reaching out for mental health care support. The good news is that gradually we are getting better at talking about how we feel and making use of those services. And that's truly the key to minimising their toll on our lives. So fingers crossed we can see that trend continue. Please take a look at our show notes for any links to the resources we mentioned on today's episode, as well as links to our website and social media page. As always, please like and subscribe to COVID Matters for more conversations with experts and let us know what you thought of this episode. Thanks for listening and until next time, please take care.